I'm convinced, as I know you are, that pastors need to grow in holiness. We're to model the Christian life for the people that we serve, and that means growing. Congregations know our weaknesses. That's fine. Being a pastor doesn't make us perfect. We don't need to hide our weaknesses as if we could. We need to grow. We need to grow because pastors are sinners in constant need of sanctification. So my last talk, The Man for the Mission, was a plea for you to grow as a Christian so you can thrive as a pastor. But now I want to reverse course. Like a forensic scientist performing an autopsy on a cadaver, I want to perform an autopsy on sin. And even more specifically, on the power of sin in the life of an unbeliever. I want to stop at this point and say, I think that this talk, on the face of it, will be less engaging if you thought the other talk was engaging at all, but less engaging than the prior talk. I think both talks are important. I think it's possible that this talk, though less engaging, is more important. So, if at any point you'd be helped by just standing up, walking to the back of the room while I talk, I want you to feel the freedom to do that. I won't judge you. Uh, anything you can do to stay engaged, I think, would be helpful. Many of the theological problems facing the global church today are downstream from our understanding of the human condition prior to salvation. Much of the confusion in the pew, whatever country you're in, about our role in salvation comes down to misunderstanding the human condition prior to salvation. But what I'm about to share is not, not merely so you can better divide the word of truth in order to properly instruct the congregation God has entrusted to your care. What I'm about to teach is designed to help you appreciate the grace of God in your own life. Before you were a pastor, you were simply a sinner in need of God's amazing grace. So I'd like you to leave this message deeply grateful to the Savior who died that you might truly live. With all that said, I have three objectives. First, to make a case for the doctrine of total depravity. I want to explain from the scriptures the condition of every human being prior to regeneration. I do not intend to talk about how saving grace comes to us. That would lead us into a different conversation and a different controversy. I do intend to demonstrate that outside this saving grace, man is unable to do good. Second, to explain why some faithful Christians might disagree. They may not disagree with total depravity in general, but they will disagree with how I articulate this doctrine of total depravity. If you are thinking through the doctrines of sovereign grace, or as you yourself talk with others about the doctrines of sovereign grace, I'm eager for you to know how Christians disagree. And then finally, to apply the doctrine of total depravity to our ministry. I'll end with a few application points related to this doctrine that may be useful for us as we pastor. All right, first, a case for total depravity. I'd like to begin, Sasha, by taking you to the beautiful University City of Heidelberg, Germany. 
The year is 1607. And a group of theologians put pen to paper explaining what the Reformed churches in Germany believed. Ten years later, the Synod of Dort would affirm what we now call the Heidelberg Confession. Now listen carefully to a statement from the Heidelberg Confession. It's called, here's the title of the statement, Concerning the Fall of Angels and Men and Concerning Hereditary Sin. Here we go. We also believe that even though God did initially create angels and men holy and good, and that he especially created man in his image and for blessed immortality, they, the angels for the largest part, and both original human beings, fell away from God, their creator, not long after having been created. By virtue of this fall, they not only have brought upon themselves the wrath of God, but have also contracted a corruption of their nature, which is such that they are no longer, that they no longer either desire or are capable of any good. The fallen angels as a body have all at once become subject to this corruption, whereas human beings inherit such corruption from the one to the other along with the guilt of temporal and eternal death. This corruption of man is therefore called hereditary sin. Now let me break total depravity with that in mind into three bite-sized pieces. That was not such a bite-sized paragraph. Let me break total depravity down into three bite-sized pieces. Piece number one, we are born morally corrupt. The first man, Adam, was not born in a sinful state. Moses tells us in Genesis 1 that God determined to make man and that he did then create man. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1:27 summarizes God's creation of both Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, we get specifics. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now in Genesis 1 and 2, we have our start. We have our beginning. There was Adam, hand crafted by God, made in God's image and likeness, filled by the breath of God, blessed by God, entrusted by God with oversight over God's creation. Adam and the rest of creation were declared by God not merely good, but very good, without any sin or corruption or blemish or stain. And all that changes in Genesis 3-7 with three little words. And he ate. Satan offered a taste of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan promised this taste would open his eyes and make him like God, Adam succumbed. He gave in to the temptation. He fell away from his creator and sin entered the world. From that moment on, Adam remained sinful. And sadly, the sin did not remain only with Adam. The story of Genesis is a story of human lives destroyed by the weight of their own sin, whether it's Cain murdering his brother Abel in Genesis 4, 8, 
or the entire generation in Noah's day, described as corrupt in Genesis 6.12, or Joseph's brothers casting him into a pit in Genesis 37.24, these are just a few of the examples of the sin of Adam having a cascading effect through the hearts and lives of Adam's descendants, male and female, from one to another, as the Heidelberg Confession puts it. Adam's sin was transmitted to all of humanity. Maybe you've heard of compound interest. The Old Testament is the narrative of compound sin. It grows, it multiplies, and it destroys. And this sin offends God. Though God would create a nation for himself, sinners comprised that nation. Because they were sinners, they needed atonement. They needed forgiveness from God. Forgiveness for their sin and salvation from God's wrath. A spotless animal sacrificed in accordance with God's instructions in Leviticus would be their only hope because God cannot commune with an unholy people. Therefore, his people, stained by Adam's sin, could not enter into the presence of God until God atoned for their sins. Therefore, God ordained the sacrificial system the rigorous and expensive and detailed process of the people providing the best they had, the best animals they had, to God, that God might forgive them of their sins, that he might dwell with them. King David, a man familiar with sin, knew sin dwelt in his own heart. In Psalm 51.5, he prayed to God these words, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What did David understand about himself? He believed his sin was not merely what he did, sleeping with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah. David understood his sin to be a fact of his inner being, at the heart of his fallen nature, a tragic result of his relationship to his older brother, Adam. Ever since Adam's fall, sin is not in the seeing, sinning, at least not fundamentally. Sin is in the being, in the sheer fact that we are all children of Adam. This is Paul's point in Romans 5.12. He states it plainly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, end quote. Now, what does this mean? First, Adam sinned. Second, death, which is the consequence of sin, spread from Adam to Cain. But in what sense did Cain sin? Not first in killing Abel. No, Cain, like David, was born a sinner. 
when Adam sinned against God, God consigned all of Adam's children to a state of sinfulness. And that's why we should understand Romans 5.12 to mean that death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Now, should we really read Romans 5.12 to mean all sinned in Adam? Well, yes. A few verses later in Romans 5.18, Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Here is imputation. The imputation of sin. Verse 12, the, the crediting of sin to our account. Imputation. And the imputation of guilt for that sin. Romans 5.18. And that makes sense of David's words all the way back in Psalm 51. I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. The point David is making, and the point Paul is making, is that before we actually do anything good or bad, our inmost self is rebellious, corrupt, perverted, sinful, and depraved. Is this fair? Is it fair for the sin of Adam to be credited to our account? Well, no fairer than the righteousness of Christ being credited to our account. To those who struggle with this, Jonathan Edwards said bluntly, however the matter be attended with difficulty, fact obliges us to get over the difficulty, either by finding out some solution or by shutting our mouths and acknowledging the weakness and scantiness of our understandings. Now, believing we are born morally corrupt makes sense of the many other passages of Scripture. Consider the words of Jesus in Mark 7, 20-23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So picture if you would a great, well, I'm in the desert. This may be hard. All right, work with me here. Picture a great, towering, beautiful oak tree. The oak tree has leaves and bark and sap. But it wasn't always there. It was once just an acorn. That acorn... That seed, that oak seed, contained all the stuff that would one day be on display in the full-grown tree. Embedded in the seed is everything that would one day come out. David and Jesus and Paul are all making this point. Inside the human heart, the heart we are all born with, is every possible sin. The heart is sinful before we were ever old enough to consciously choose rebellion. Our hearts, if you will, had already chosen rebellion for us. It's just the way we are. At the moment 
the egg is fertilized and becomes a baby. Sin rears its ugly head in the human heart. Piece two. This corruption is comprehensive. Now here is the line from the Heidelberg Confession that arrests our attention. Quote, They not only have brought upon themselves the wrath of God, but have also contracted a corruption of their nature, which is such that they no longer either desire or are capable of any good. Fallen, morally corrupt people, which was all of us outside of Christ, no longer either desire or are capable of any good. This demands explanation. Let's start with Paul's words in Titus, to Titus in 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What does this mean? Again, I'm talking now about the unregenerate, about the person without the Spirit of God, about the non-Christian. Every part of him is so corrupt that no part of him is motivated by righteous desires. This is awful, but I think not hard to understand. Imagine unbelieving nine-year-old Tommy desperate for a trip to Disneyland. Do people in the Middle East go to Disneyland? Legoland. Whatever works for you. Dad says he'll take the family to Legoland, but only if Tommy refrains for a whole month from punching his brother, Sam. Tommy is annoyed by Sam. Tommy mocks Sam. Tommy threatens Sam, but Tommy never hits Sam. Why not? Is it because Tommy loves his brother Sam? Is it because Tommy is is it because Tommy is eager to honor the wishes of his father? No, Tommy loves Legoland. Paul would say that both the mind and the conscience of Tommy is defiled. Theologian Anthony Hokema explains how sin has corrupted Tommy. Quote, there is not present in man by nature love to God as the motivating principle of his life, end quote. What is the motivating principle that leads Tommy? Love for self. There is not present in Tommy by nature a love for Sam or a love for his dad. So there it is. That nails it. Our moral corruption in which we are all born is so comprehensive. It is so deep. It is so pervasive that even the best actions, not hitting Sam, right? That's a good action. Not hitting Sam is good. Are nonetheless bad actions because they are done for the wrong reasons. They are done for ourself instead of for our maker. Any action not done for the love and glory of God is sin. And so when the Heidelberg theologians say the unbeliever neither desires nor is capable of good, this is what they mean. Our actions are only good if they are grounded in a desire to please and to glorify God. 
And this is why giving money to the Red Cross can be sin. This is why walking an old lady across the street can be sin. This is why entering ministry can be sin. Not because any of these actions in and of themselves are sinful, but because unless the action has a motivating principle of love for God, even the best actions are sin. This is what makes Jesus' words about the rich young man in Matthew 19 so amazing. This man wanted something good. He wanted eternal life. He wanted to know what good deeds he needed to do in order to get eternal life. And Jesus told him to obey the law. And the man said he did. And Jesus told him to sell everything he had and to give it to the poor. And come, follow me, Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 21. Come, follow me. I think we often skip over those words of Jesus. Come, follow me. Negatively, Jesus commanded this man to give away what he had. Give away. Positively, Jesus commanded him to follow him. Right, so what this young man needed to do more than anything else was to put Jesus first. To want Jesus. To love Jesus. To love Jesus more than... It wasn't just sell. It was come. To love Jesus more than anything. To love Jesus more than he loved his money. Non-Christians can give money to the poor in Dubai, dig wells outside of Khartoum, and clean the streets of Mumbai. In one sense of the word, these are good works. But unless the desire for the work is the glory of God, unless the heart for this work is the love of God, these works are nothing more than, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, filthy rags. Isaiah 64.6. And that's why I say the corruption is comprehensive. Okay, piece number three. This corruption is inescapable. The non-Christian by himself cannot escape his sin and condemnation and turn to God. Again, Hokuma puts it well, quote, the unregenerate person is unable, apart from the special working of the Holy Spirit, to change the basic direction of his or her life from sinful self-love to love for God. The unbeliever is imprisoned, imprisoned by his own sin. He cannot escape this prison. He needs to be broken out of this prison. His only hope of salvation is a divine prison break led by the Holy Spirit. In and of ourselves, left alone by God, in our own strength and power, we cannot, we will not turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. Not in one year, not in a thousand years, not in a million years. The Spirit must break us out. This is the clear teaching of Jesus in John chapter 3. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus of the need to be born again before entering the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is flabbergasted. Jesus might just as well have told him to sprout wings and fly. Listen to what Nicodemus said. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? John 3, 4. Well, of course not. But Jesus speaks of another birth, a second birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. All right. Nobody is smart enough to escape the prison of his own sin. Nobody is enough good on the inside to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Nobody can give away enough money, adopt enough kids, feed enough poor people, 
to tip the cosmic scales of justice in their favor. So when I say this corruption is inescapable, I mean the unbeliever is, as Paul put it in Ephesians 3, 5, dead in his trespasses. We all needed the Spirit of God to work. Only the Spirit of God can orchestrate, accomplish a prison break. In 1994, I was walking from my house to an office building where I worked every day. I'm in my suit and my tie, and I'm carrying my briefcase over my shoulder, and I've got a book in my hand. And uh, at this point, I really do not believe that the non-Christian is unable to do good. A lot of double negatives there. At this point, I thought unbelievers could do good. Much better. Now, the book in my hand was a, uh, a collection of sermons on John chapter 3. And the author painted the picture of a man who had fallen out of a boat into a deep lake. So he falls out of the boat, and this lake, this lake is filled with all this, like, seaweed. And he starts, you know, he can't really swim. He starts, you know, lashing out, and the seaweed just sort of cinches around all of his limbs. So he's, you know, he's underwater, and he realizes, I, I'm, I, I'm stuck. I can't do anything. And at that moment, out of the boat, this, this, this hand comes down with a, a knife and, and cuts the seaweed off. And the, and the guy grabs him by the collar and rips him up you know, above the water to, that he might, he might live. Now that day, literally as I'm walking down the street reading this sermon, I came to see that the corruption of total depravity is inescapable but not unconquerable. Like God can do it. God saves. He does it. He does it every day. That moment, my understanding, I understood my inability to save myself as I walked to work. Now, I was a Christian at the time, but I thought non-Christians could still do good. I didn't realize they were stuck, imprisoned by their own sin. So for the first time, I understood what it means to say that I am nothing without the grace of God. The English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, had a similar experience. It was a weekday, and he attended an evening service. He was only half paying attention to the sermon when a question popped into his mind. Not the preacher, but Spurgeon. How did you become a Christian? He told himself. I sought the Lord. He answered himself. But how did you come to seek the Lord? He gave it some thought, and he said to himself, I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed. But then he asked, well, how came I to pray? He was induced to pray by reading the Bible. But what led him to read the Bible? And at that point, Spurgeon made a realization that would forever change him and his preaching. Spurgeon. Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I, de I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Now there, in summary form, is the doctrine of total depravity. We are born morally corrupt. This corruption is comprehensive. And this corruption is inescapable. Now, in one sense, I could be done. Because what I've just said, I believe to be true and helpful. But especially in a room full of pastors or those aspiring for ministry, I want to ask the question, well, why do some disagree? Let me present two reasons 
why some disagree with total depravity as I just laid it out for you. The reasons are of different quality, but they're out there. They're pervasive. And again, it's especially important for us as pastors to know why other pastors and perhaps even some members of our own churches would disagree with the doctrine of total depravity as I just explained it. And so let me give you uh, two reasons. Reason number one, they, those who disagree, they believe there is good in an unbeliever and deny a special work of the Spirit is required to save him, the unbeliever. Right? They believe there is good in the unbeliever and deny a special work of the Spirit is required to save the unbeliever. Now let me present their argument. Imagine your salvation is a long and winding road, and you're in a car on that long and winding road. You have everything that you need in your car to drive into the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God is not in the car. He's on the side of the road. You're in the car. You can drive the car wherever you want. Without his help, you can drive straight into the kingdom of God. In other words, if you can be born, you can turn and trust in God. Those who argue this don't think Adam's sin left us so corrupt that we are spiritually unable to turn to God. Furthermore, they insist it's unfair for anything Adam did in the garden to directly affect us in the 21st century. Now, some, not all, but some would deny original or hereditary sin entirely. They would argue we're born good, or at least born morally neutral, and that sin is only in the sinning. Now, that would be the position, would have been the, was the position of a British monk named Pelagius, who served in Rome and Africa in the early 5th century. His position, known as Pelagianism, received the rebuke of Augustine and the censure of more than one church council. Now, a less extreme position is known as semi-Pelagianism. The semi-Pelagian does not deny the need for divine grace to be saved, but insists that the first steps toward God, right, the step of faith, is entirely in our own power to exercise. We have the steering wheel. The Holy Spirit is outside the car. This would be the position of the, a famous American revivalist preacher of the 1800s, Charles Finney. In a sermon called, Make Yourselves a New Heart, Finney preached this. All that is necessary to make a sinner a Christian is that he directs all his plans and efforts to that object of salvation. In other words, Finney said believing is simply a matter of the human will. Finney's theology can be summarized with a famous American proverb, God helps those who help themselves. Finney rejected the doctrine of total depravity. He refused to believe that our sin is so great, so deep, so pervasive, so comprehensive, that we cannot escape it on our own. He denied there's anyone so spiritually dead, he lacks the power to choose God. All right. I'm about to quote a man uh, by the name of Roger Olson. 
Roger Olson is not a Calvinist. In fact, he would call himself an Arminian. But he rejects the theology of Finney. He rejects this idea that a person in his own strength, unaided by the Holy Spirit, can turn to God. However, Olson believes that Finney's theology is preached all over America today. Listen to Olson. The gospel preached and the doctrine of salvation taught in most evangelical pulpits and lecterns and believed in most evangelical pews is not classical Arminianism, but semi-Pelagianism, if not outright Pelagianism, end quote. Right? This is an Arminian's take on the state of preaching and belief in America today. And if America is exporting many pastors, this is the theology being exported. A couple of years ago, I attended a, a conference in my own state, the state of Georgia, where a pastor from Florida preached a sermon on Matthew 11, where Jesus told his disciples to report to John the Baptist what they'd seen Jesus do. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. Now, this pastor took this text and argued that each of us is born sinful and unrighteous, and that we need the gospel to save us. And when he described salvation, this is what he said. I was, I, I can't do justice to how he preached this, but use your imagination. I was stone graveyard dead, but the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, when I rested my faith on his gospel, the Holy Spirit entered into me and raised me from the dead, and I am fully alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I was stone graveyard dead. I rested my faith on the gospel, and the Holy Spirit entered me. Now notice he didn't say that when the Spirit entered him, he then rested his faith. No, he said the opposite. The Spirit came after he took the first step of believing. So for him, this 21st century American Baptist preacher, for him, the Holy Spirit is on the side of the road, waiting for him to open the car door and invite him inside. His view of total depravity is different from my view of total depravity because he denied we need the Spirit of God to rest our faith on, in the gospel. We do the believing, unaided by the Spirit, and God does the saving. Again, the Spirit of God is on the side of the road until you decide to start driving toward the kingdom of God. So that's the first reason. And the second reason people might not believe what I shared with you about total depravity. Here's reason number two. They, those who don't believe what I'm saying about total depravity, they believe the Spirit of God cooperates with the spirit of the unbeliever but still deny a special work of the Spirit is required to save him. They believe the Spirit cooperates with the spirit of the unbeliever, but still deny a special work of the Spirit is required to save him. So going back to the car analogy, the Spirit's in the passenger seat. At least he's in the car, in progress, 
passenger seat. So some who would deny total depravity, as I've explained it, affirm the need for the Holy Spirit, but they would see the car of your salvation has the Spirit within. The Spirit's in the car, but in the passenger seat. Your hands are always and firmly on the wheel. He's there to guide. Now, these are Christians who generally do believe in total depravity. If you go up to them and say, well, you deny total depravity, they, they would say, no, I don't. Right? They affirm Adam's sin has infected all of his descendants in such a way that we cannot take a step towards God without God first taking a step towards us. So a couple Baptists by the name of David Allen and Steve Lemke are not Calvinists. They would not affirm my case for total depravity, but still they believe God must take the first step. He must be the initiator of our salvation. They put it this way. Sinners are saved through a faith response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel before the response of the sinner. We do not prioritize the human will over the grace of God. The free response of any sinner is not possible without God's initiation. And so what they're doing here is they're holding two truths, in well, two things they believe both to be true, intention. Truth number one, God is the initiator of salvation. Truth number two, everyone is independently able to respond to God's call. You understand truth number two is what I argued against in my first point, right? That no one is able independently to respond to God's call. Right? They would argue, no, they are independently able to respond to God's call, and they're arguing God is the initiator of salvation. So how do they make this work out biblically? Well, first, they soften total depravity to mean we are inclined towards sin. We're inclined as opposed to spiritually incapacitated by sin. Whatever our condition before we are saved by God, they say, it is never so bad that we cannot repent and believe the good news. To support this view, they argue that folks like me make too much of the word dead. It's simply one image, they say, in the Bible to describe our spiritual condition before salvation. Right? All the images put together, they argue, support the idea that we're, we're inclined to sin, but not enslaved to sin in such a way that we can't turn to God. So they would point to other images to the unsaved state, like sickness, Matthew 9, 12, blindness, Matthew 15, 14, lovers of darkness, John 3, 19. And so they, they look at all those images and they conclude, as one did, that in Scripture, this is a quote, in Scripture, spiritually dead people can and do respond to God. Again, the first step is to soften total depravity to mean an inclination to sin rather than incapacitation by sin. The second step they make is to demand that a biblical command assumes an ability to obey. Right, so since the Bible commands people to repent and believe, they must therefore be spiritually able to repent and believe, to obey that command. Otherwise, they say God is unjust. 
know, again, I'm, I'm sharing an argument from conservative, Bible-believing Christians. I want you to understand what they do with this doctrine of total depravity. Where do they land? They would say no one needs to be born again in order to repent and believe. We repent and believe, and then we are born again. Listen again to how one author put it. Quote, the command to repent implies that people are able to repent. It would be unjust for God to command a task and then judge people who would not comply for failing to do that which he commanded. Now, again, this is the argument made by people who are, who are saying that the Holy Spirit is in the car. Okay? One, as an aside, one thing that concerns me about this line of reasoning is that it's exactly how those who argue that the Holy Spirit is on the side of the road argue. Charles Finney used the same line of reasoning. Their criticism of total depravity is in line with his. Listen to Finney's argument against total depravity. To say that we are under obligation to do what we have no power to do is absurd. This is contrary to right reason. As therefore God requires men to make themselves a new heart on pain of eternal death, it is the strongest possible evidence they are able to do it. So many who deny total depravity, and by that I mean they're denying man's spiritual inability or incapacity to repent and believe, affirm that God initiates salvation. They don't want to rob God of glory. The question then is how? How does God initiate salvation in, in such a way that the sinner responds independently of God? And the most compelling answer they give is the answer of prevenient or preceding grace. This is a grace, they say, that is shed in the heart of all. At the moment of conception, such that those who inherit Adam's sin are now morally capable of choosing Christ. Listen to how Roger Olson put it. Quote, Christ's atoning death on the cross removed the penalty of original sin and released, released into humanity a new impulse that begins to reverse the depravity with which they all come into the world, end quote. In other words, Jesus came not only to save some, but to provide a new start for all. A measure of provenient grace extends through Christ, they say, to every person. Now, is this idea of provenient grace in the Bible? Olson would argue it's implied by the fact that God is love, John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 8, and the fact that God doesn't want any to perish, 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9, implied, they say, by these verses is the idea that the grace of God comes universally because God is love, because God desires none to be saved. It simply must be the case that God's grace, not saving grace, but empowering grace, is distributed to all such that it's truly possible for all to save themselves. Now, if I've lost you, let me summarize these different views of total depravity that I've explained this morning, borrowing here from a couple Methodist theologians at Asbury Theological Seminary. But let's change the analogy from that of a, of a driver to a prisoner. Right? Picture a sinner who's been convicted of a crime. He's outside the gate of the prison. He's under legal obligation to enter into that prison. We'll call it the prison of eternal punishment. Across the street, this prisoner hears the words of an evangelist. 
who's spoken to the judge and has a piece of paper which guarantees his freedom and release, if only he'll cross the street and accept it. You see, do you have it in your mind, the picture? He's on the way to the prison of eternal punishment. That's where he deserves to go. But the evangelist calls out, come, I've got a piece of paper, freedom, just cross the street. Right? That's the semi-Pelagian, the Finneite view. Now, let's picture another sinner. He's actually in the prison. And it's really bad. He's in solitary confinement, holed up in the deepest, darkest corner of the prison. He's weak. He's not thinking straight. But someone breaks into the prison and somehow makes his way to the cell. And finding the prisoner dazed and woozy, he injects some medicine into the prisoner's body to clear his mind. And now this invader says, give me your hand. Trust me. Follow me. Well, with a cleared mind, the prisoner reaches out his hand, grabs a hold of it, and then is drugged out of the prison. That is the classic Arminian position. Dare I say, only if more held that position and not the semi-Pelagian position, it would be better off. All right. In Baptist circles, what I just gave you is called the traditionalist position. Now, what is the reformed position? So let me give you my position. Like our second prisoner, this third prisoner is holed up in the deepest, darkest corner of the prison. He's locked up from head to toe. Again, someone breaks into the prison, but this time the rescue, rescuer comes in, breaks the man's chains, picks him up, puts him over his shoulder, and carries him out of the prison. That's my position. You might call it the Reformed or even Calvinistic position, as one theologian put it, uh, where the Arminian will only say, I could not have gained my salvation without Calvary. The Calvinist says, Christ gained my salvation for me at Calvary. Now, back in 1618, responding to those who denied this. The theologians at the Synod of Dort did not use the expression total depravity, but they insisted original sin leaves us morally incapacitated and in need of a completely divine rescue. They put it this way. Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto, and without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation. Or in the words of the Anglican, J.I. Packer, quote, God saves men as he finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, blind, unable to lift a finger to do God's will, or better their spiritual lot. All right. Well, let me end with some application. Once again, several points fairly quickly. First, marvel at the image of God in everyone. I hope it's clear to you that the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that people are as bad as they could possibly be. I've not intended to communicate that, not at all. That's why some don't even like the term total depravity. They prefer radical depravity. God in his kindness has ensured every man, woman, and child remains in the image of God. So to say we are totally depraved is not to say we are worthless. 
every human being, Hindu, Muslim, atheist, Sikh, is of inestimable value, the crown of God's creation, worthy of our love. The sunlight warms the face of the saved and the unsaved alike. As pastors, we should lead our congregations to have immense pity for those around us, even those who might try to hurt them for being Christians. How could Jesus weep over unbelieving Jerusalem? How could Stephen pray for those stoning him to death? Because he knew they were dead in their sins and transgressions. And he knew the stamp of the glory of God was, was within them. And this conviction led to deep compassion. So we pray for and seek the lost because they bear God's image. Total depravity does not make them our enemy. It makes them in desperate need of divine intervention. And it's why we've committed our lives to bringing the good news to some of the darkest places in the world. All right, second. Be gracious toward those who disagree. Who disagree with total depravity as I've articulated here. I would say be a Christian pastor, not a Calvinist pastor. Calvinism is shorthand for big God theology. Calvinism is a term that summarizes our salvation is all of God from beginning to end. But Calvinism need not be your brand, need not even be your tribe. I agree with Spurgeon who said, if any man asks me whether I am ashamed to be called a Calvinist, I answer, I wish to be called nothing but a Christian. But if you ask me, do I hold the doctrinal views which were held by John Calvin? I reply, I do in the main hold them and rejoice to avow it. Timothy George pointed out how John Wesley, the Methodist, and Spurgeon, the Calvinist, both urged their disciples to preach with humility on this issue. Wesley told Arminian preachers to watch their mouths. Is it not the duty of every Arminian preacher, never in public or in private, to use the word Calvinist as a term of reproach, seeing it is neither better nor worse than calling names? And Spurgeon said, Far be it from me even to imagine that Zion, heaven, contains none but Calvinistic Christians within her walls. Right. Number three. Even as you struggle, and I, and I, I know that this is a, a room full of church leaders, but even as you struggle with, with tough theology, and some of the things I said here, I believe they're all biblical. The case I made, I believe it's biblical. I wouldn't be making it. But I recognize it can be tough. But I would encourage you to let God be God. As pastors, we don't have to have all of our theology worked out. We aren't just works in progress morally. We're works in progress theologically, doctrinally. I don't mean to say that our doctrine is wet cement. I do mean to say that there are some truths we believe as deeply as we can, even as we pray, Lord, help my unbelief. Thus, even for the faithful pastor, there are implications of the doctrine of total depravity that are hard to wrestle with. Right? If corruption is inescapable, if salvation must be of God from start to finish, if he's entirely sovereign over our salvation, well, how should we process the state of our unbelieving children, unbelieving parents. But there are good answers to that question, but it's also good to stop and simply remember God is God. It's okay not to know how something works out and simply trust that God's word is true. Let God be God. Lean into passages like Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or Isaiah 55.9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Number four, 
lead your congregations to meditate on sin so that they can marvel at grace. There are those who find this topic of total depravity depressing. They wonder, what good does it do to ponder how awful we were before Christ saved us? Well, I do believe it is possible to pay too much attention to our sin and not enough to God's love. But it is the rare Christian who struggles to think too much about his sin. When the Christian is led to ponder the sin God saved him from and the sin he struggles with now, I would say he's like a miner who's got his pick and he starts digging, digging, and digging. And he digs so long and so hard that he goes to the very core of the earth and pops up on the other side. Can you imagine how dark it would be to dig through the center of the earth? And how glorious it would be for the, the ceiling to come tumbling in and for him to see the light. Those pastors were often taking a pick and taking our congregations to the darkness of sin so that they might marvel at the glorious light of the gospel of the glory of God. It doesn't get darker than total depravity. But to know where you came from is to rejoice over how much God did to find you. Right, fifth, pastor, give God the glory. Give God the glory. There's a book written in 1818 by a woman named Mary Shelley, and the book is called Frankenstein. And everybody thinks Frankenstein is the monster. Frankenstein is not the monster. Frankenstein is the creator of the monster. So for years and years and years, the creator of the monster has been robbed the glory he deserves as we've given the name Frankenstein to the monster. And so it is with us. We're prone to glorify man, the created, and not God, the creator. We strive to build up our own kingdoms, to gather our own crowds, to draw our own praise as if we're a big deal when we're clearly not. Like, what does total depravity tell you? You're just not a big deal. I mean, it's amazing. You're the apple of God's eye. I don't want to take anything away from that. So, like, you could go two ways with this. Like, one is you're a bigger deal than you ever thought you could be. But on the other hand, like, God did it all. He gets a, a thousand and ten percent of the credit. The doctrine of Total depravity leaves no room for boasting. God did it. He did it all. He chose us. He found us. He spoke his word to us. He breathed life into us. He justified us. He saved us. He will glorify us to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1.6. So the moment, as Josh pointed out a few minutes ago, the moment you compare yourself to your neighbor or to another pastor, you compare your, you're worshiping the created rather than the creator. And I think the doctrine of total depravity helps you to see the silliness of that. And then number seven. I might have lost number six. But let's call this number six. I'm sure six was really good, but six has gone to the deleted scrap heap of history. Lead your church to the cross. So a pastor, Richard Phillips, tells a story, and I wonder if you've heard it before in your own ministry. A young man came up to him and said that, that he was sound theologically, this young man says, member of his church. Like, I'm sound theologically, I affirm all the right doctrine, but I, I feel nothing. I feel no joy. I feel no peace. I feel no zeal. I don't feel anything. And this is how Pastor Phillips summarized his own response. I answered that so far as his testimony was true, he did not have impeccable doctrine, nor did he even subscribe to the truths of the doctrines of grace. Not really, anyway. In short, if in his entire Christian life he had never felt anything, as he insisted was the case, 
then the reality was that his Christian life never really existed. This is a hard thing to hear. But do you see what he's getting at? You may say you believe in total depravity. One may say he believes in total depravity. But if you really see yourself for who you were, if your sin in that sense is truly before you, if you're, you're able to examine your life and see, that, see the way your greed has kept you from being generous to those in need, or the way your anger has hurt those you love, or the way your lust has made a mockery of men and women made in God's image, or the way your pride has led you to constantly put down others, even if only in your own mind. Like until you see the, the depth of your depravity, we will never appreciate the, Christ, the, the price Christ paid. If you don't, so this is what Phillips was saying to this young man, if you don't feel Christianity, because you don't believe what Paul said in Ephesians 2, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, totally depraved, but God. No one who knows he was rescued is ungrateful to the rescuer. We don't need to understand total depravity to be better theologians or pastors, at least not fundamentally. We need to understand total depravity to be better worshipers, to lead our congregations to be more grateful for a Savior who gave up all glory that we might be called children of God.